0: There's nothing more foundational, theologically speaking, than the events that happen in the Garden of Eden. It's in the Garden that we are introduced to Adam and Eve, to the serpent, and to the biblical concept of exile. The Garden contains a mighty river and a tree of life. And with all of these concepts together in one place, it seems like a story that's ready for rethinking. Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and we are taking a few episodes here to look a little deeper into the Rethinking Scripture projects. These projects are where I spend most of my theological energy, my researching, exploring, my asking questions, finding out what questions other people are asking. And the topics of these projects are not only foundational to the Christian faith, But they are truths that the Bible builds upon from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And in that way, they are foundational. In the last episode, I spoke a little about the Rethinking Rest project. And we asked a lot of questions and maybe challenged some established thinking. And remember, that is the goal of the podcast. What I don't want to do is just simply rely on established thoughts and ideas if there's a good biblically-based reason to consider another approach. But that process can be a bit uncomfortable at times. And today, as we rethink the story of Eden, it may be a little challenging for some. The story of Eden is not only foundational, but my guess is, no matter what faith experience you've had, you probably have some ideas about what is being communicated through this story. So today, we'll just briefly touch on a few of the following topics. We'll consider maybe the location of Eden, both historically and theologically, and we'll examine those we refer to as Adam and Eve In much the same way in the recent past it was maybe safe to say that conservatives understood eden adam and eve to be real historical characters and that liberals well they might not it was a pretty clean cut division but that dividing line isn't as easy to draw anymore and i'd just like to start by asking the question when you step into the sacred ground of eden what story do you have in your head I suppose we should start with the generally understood idea that there seems to be two creation accounts in the beginning chapters of the Bible. The first one, in Genesis 1 1 to 2 3, discusses the six days of creative activity and the seventh day of rest. And we discussed that briefly in the last episode. But then, in Genesis 2 4, there begins a different story. Well, some would say it's a different story, some would say, It's the same story told in a different way. But one of the reasons people see Genesis 2-4 as the beginning of something different is the way that the author refers to God. So there's something you may not have noticed before, but if you were to look at the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, you would notice that the author refers to the creator of the heavens and the earth simply as God. In the beginning, God created Then God said that the light was good. And so it was all the way through the end of that first creation account. And then it says, God blessed the seventh day and rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So in the first account, the Hebrew word behind the translation for God is Elohim. It's a plural word that is commonly used for God in the Old Testament. But interestingly enough, it's also used at times for other gods. Pagan gods. This is something we see in Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. I'll just read through them because there's a couple of different things going on here. Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. Then God, and that's Elohim, said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God. And in the Hebrew, that is not Elohim, it's El. It's a shortened version of the same. Make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods. And that's Eloah, which is, again, another form of Elohim. So just here in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 35, you've got three different versions of Elohim being used. Two of them refer to the God of the Old Testament, and one of those uses is, is just to foreign gods, to pagan gods. That's the word that's used consistently in the first creation account that ends in chapter 2, verse 3. It's the only word used to describe the creator in that first account. But then something interesting happens in the second creation story. You'll notice in the English versions, it's not just simply God anymore, but the author refers to the creator as Lord God. It was the Lord God who formed man of dust from the ground. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. The Hebrew behind the word for God is the exact same. It's Elohim. But the author has added something to that title, that name. And it's the Hebrew word behind our translation of Lord that is called the Tetragrammaton. It's four letters, a Yod, a He, a Vav, and a He. And it's unique in that it is the name for the God of the Old Testament. Sometimes that is translated into English as Yahweh or sometimes Jehovah, depending on the translation you have. But it is the specific name of the God of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. So then the question is, why change the way God is described from that first creation account to this second one? Well there are a lot of guesses and no one knows exactly for sure but some have concluded that there was a different author for this second account of creation or maybe this account was added at a later edit of the text once the Yahweh character was more fully developed in the other parts of Genesis. Whatever the reason it does signify a shift from one story to another and that's what we're going to focus on today. It's a shift from the creation and ordering of everything to a more specific story of the relationship of humans within that structure. So one of the questions I always like to ask when talking about Eden, the setting of that second creation story, is the question, where is it? And by that, I mean, is Eden real? And that's actually a tougher question than it might first appear. The biblical description of Eden places it on a mountain and suggests the river that flows out from it provides the headwaters for four different rivers, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris and Euphrates. The Tigris and Euphrates are well known to us, even today. And while the other two are a bit of a mystery, their description suggests that Eden was understood as an actual location to the original biblical author. And many of us really like that perspective. I mean, that Eden was real. But if that's true, it really leads to the next question. Is Eden real today? And while some want Eden to be an historical reality, few would argue that it still exists somewhere today. But according to the biblical narrative, and this is what I like to point out, when Adam and Eve were expelled, cherubim were stationed as the guardians of paradise. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life, was put in place at the entrance. And that's sort of the end of the story for Eden. So, are we to assume the cherubim and the sword are still there, guarding the location? Well, I think that's a great question to ask, and I'm definitely not going to try and solve that conundrum today. I just think it needs to be part of the discussion when we talk about this story. No matter what you think of Eden's current state, whether you could find it in Google Maps or not, the biblical authors seem to present it as an actual historical location. And as we will see, it's this garden that is also full of several theological foundations for the rest of the biblical narrative. Going to be relying heavily on some authors for the remainder of today's podcast. The first we've heard from before, I've quoted him quite often, it's Gregory Beale. And I'll be referencing some work that he did in a 2018 article, Adam as the First Priest in Eden as the First Garden Temple. It was in the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. and this essay is a summary for part of a book that Beale wrote. And that book is called A New Testament Biblical Theology. It was published back in 2011. And in this article, one of the things that Beale argues, and he does it not just here and in the book, but also in several other places, Beale argues that the first sanctuary was in Eden. And by sanctuary, what he means is the first temple. We are to understand Eden, in other words, as a temple sanctuary. Beale says this, But how could we possibly know this, since there was no architectural structure in Eden, nor does the word temple or sanctuary occur as a description of Eden in Genesis 1-3? through He admits that such a claim may sound strange, but that there are a number of scholars that have recently argued that we should be viewing Eden as the first temple. He gives nine observations. We're not going to cover all of them here, but we're just going to mention a couple that I think are foundational to the idea. He says, first, the temple later in the Old Testament was the unique place of God's presence, where Israel had to go to experience that presence. Israel's temple was the place where the priest experienced God's unique presence, and Eden, in turn, was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. It's the same Hebrew verbal used for God's walking back and forth in the garden in Genesis 3:8 that also describes God's presence in the tabernacle. And he quotes Leviticus 26:12, Deuteronomy 23:14, 2nd Samuel 7:6 and 7, and Ezekiel 28:14. Another thought that Beal gives as to why we should be thinking of Eden as a temple is that in Genesis 2.15, it says that God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate and to keep it. The two Hebrew words, Beal points out, for cultivate and keep are usually translated serve and guard. When these two words occur together later in the Old Testament, without exception, they have this meaning, to serve and guard. And it refers either to the Israelites serving and guarding and obeying God's word, that's about 10 times, or more often to priests who serve God in the temple and guard the temple from unclean things entering it. And Beal concludes from this that Adam was to be the first priest to serve in and guard God's first temple. And when Adam fails to guard the temple by sinning and then letting in an unclean serpent to defile the temple, Adam loses his priestly role and the two cherubim take over the responsibility of guarding the garden temple. God stationed those cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3:24, and their role became memorialized in Israel's later temple when God commanded Moses to make two statues of angelic figures and stationed them on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Beal also points out that the tree of life that we see in the Garden of Eden story was probably the original model for the lampstand that's placed directly outside the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. It looked like a small tree trunk with seven protruding branches, three on one side, three on the other, one branch going straight up from the trunk in the middle. Beal also observes some other things from the temple that Israel built that would suggest that maybe it's a reminder of the first temple in Eden. He says this, That the Garden of Eden was the first temple is also suggested by observing that Israel's later temple had wood carvings, which gave it a garden-like atmosphere, and likely were intentional reflections of Eden. In 1 Kings six eighteen and 29, it says there was cedar carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers, specifically verse 18, and on the walls of the temple and the wood doors of the inner sanctuary were carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Beneath the heads of the two pillars placed at the entrance of the holy place were carved pomegranates. So just to pause again from Beal, I think it may be important just to stop and say this because some people look at Israel's temple and they see something that's foundational. Beale's argument, and it's not just Beale. again, it's it's a lot of different theologians out there that are discussing these very same things. But the argument is that Israel's temple is not foundational in and of itself. In other words, we shouldn't be trying to get back to Israel's temple because all Israel's temple was, was a reflection of the first sanctuary of Eden. So with that train of thought, really what we should be doing and focusing on is the original Eden. Because, interestingly enough, and Beale talks about this in great detail, especially in the book called The Temple and the Church's Mission, when we get to the end of the biblical story in the last chapters of Revelation, we get a picture of what some describe as an expanded Eden. What do I mean by that? Well, in the original story here, back in the beginning of Genesis, we've got the creation of the world that has been ordered and formed, and then there seems to be a distinction within that world of Eden and a garden associated with Eden, and then space outside the garden that is categorically different. We're not going to get into great detail now, but that space outside the garden is unique because that's where Adam and Eve's exile happens. So really, one of the foundational questions about Eden is, what was the purpose of Eden originally? And that's a good question. You may not have actually thought about before. What was the end goal for the original Eden? Had the fall not happened, had the exile not happened for Adam and Eve, what was the original end goal? Well, Adam and Eve were originally at rest with God in the Garden of Eden. Eden was that special place of God's presence. And like most temples in the ancient Near East, it too was located on a mountain, rivers flowing from it. And you might ask, how do we know that Adam and Eve were at rest with God when they were in the Garden? Well, the text tells us this way. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. God gave them a place to be. He gave them something to do. And several English translations veil the most important aspect of this verse. The word describing how God placed humanity in the garden is a Hebrew word for rest. It could be understood that God took the humans and rested them in the garden to do their work. Adam was there to abide, to rest, and to take up residence. The garden then had been ordered and structured and humanity was at rest with God in that sacred space. They were in their place, fulfilling their God-given role and functioning the way they were intended to function. And some like to think of Eden as a perfect world, but it wasn't. God had created the function and order needed to assemble his entire kingdom throughout the entire world, but he didn't originally create the completed product. Eden was really only the beginning of that process. God created all the parts and invited humanity to help him with the assembly. And God knew, given the mandate that he had given to humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue and rule, to cultivate and to keep— He knew that the original garden would eventually fill up with people. And if they had continued to follow his rule and command in their God-given place to be, it would have been necessary to expand the borders of the original Garden of Eden to include some of that outside space. And in that way, humanity and God would take his rule and expand it into the other parts of the world. So what's the end game for Eden? Had everything gone perfectly well, Eden would have continued to expand. People would have continued to live at rest with God within that atmosphere in sacred space. And eventually, the Eden experience would have expanded to the entire earth. But we never got a chance to see that play out because of the decision of Adam and Eve And what is sin in that context? Sin is just going against your God-given place to be and going against the God-established order and function of the universe and trying to create your own order and function. And when Adam and Eve did that, they were expelled from sacred space. And the rest of the biblical story is the story of how humanity recovers from that fateful decision, how God provides a way for the end goal. There are so many things about the Garden of Eden that have got me thinking outside the original box that I had tried to shove it within. Gregory Beale has helped me get outside of that box and thinking thematically about what the story of Eden says and how it plays into the rest of scripture with temples and sacred space. Another man that has helped me expand the borders of Eden is John Walton. I've mentioned John Walton before as well he has written a book called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. It's a really good book that gets you thinking outside of maybe traditional ruts that you've been in regarding this creation account that we find in Genesis 2 and 3. The thing I like about Walton is that he backs everything up from a scriptural standpoint, where we may have brought stuff in from our culture to understand this story. What Walton tries to do is always go back to the text to say, how have these concepts been displayed and played out within the text of the Bible? And can we use that context to help us determine what the story of Eden means in Genesis 2 and 3? In The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Walton discusses several propositions, and he handles them individually, and then he'll move on to the next one. And today I'm just going to be speaking briefly out of some of the content in Proposition Number Eight. The first part that I'm going to discuss just talks about this idea that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. We find that in Genesis 2, verse 7. It says this Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Walton points out that it's really very typical for people to interpret this verse about man being formed of dust as being some sort of a description of the material content used to create man. So we assume that this is a description of how man was materially formed. But Walton kind of challenges that idea. He says this, The most basic way to think about dust would be to view it as part of the chemical composition of the human body. That approach immediately has several drawbacks. First, the Israelites would not have been inclined to think in terms of chemistry. They would have no means to do that, and therefore, they had something else in mind as they considered this detail. Second, he says, we would have to consider it flawed chemistry from our vantage point in that dust could hardly be considered the primary ingredient of the human body. Therefore, just from those two conclusions, we must look for another alternative, he says, and there is no place better than to look in the text itself. We find the decisive clue in Genesis 3, 19, where it says, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Walton says it's here that we discover that dust refers to mortality. This association would make sense to an Israelite reader who is well acquainted with the idea of a corpse laid out on a slab in the family tomb that would end up being bones and dust within a year. Nevertheless, some have been reluctant to adopt this view because a sense that other scriptural passages contradict it. Specifically, they go to point out, many have concluded that since Paul states that death came through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, people were created immortal. Now, I'm breaking away from Walton for just a second because this is kind of foundational in his point. In Romans 5.12, Paul says that death came through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And it is a common conclusion to think from this that people were originally created immortal. In other words, we were not supposed to originally die, but it's through sin that death came originally. It was because of sin. Sin was actually the cause of pulling people out of an immortal state into mortality. Walton continues this way, We must carefully consider whether this is what Paul is saying. Besides the likelihood that Genesis 3.19 suggests people were created mortal, another piece of evidence in Genesis offers even stronger evidence. Walton says, In the garden, God provided a tree of life. Immortal people have no need for a tree of life. The provision of one suggests that they were mortal. This is one of Walton's ideas that really stretched my boundaries as to what I originally thought the Bible may be saying versus maybe another possibility that the text would allow. It makes logical sense to me that the reason Adam and Eve were originally not going to die is because they had access to the tree of life. And when they went against God's plan, they were removed from the Garden of Eden and no longer had access to the tree of life. And in that way, they were prevented access to the solution of their mortality. Walton continues, now, lest we think that Paul's statement might be out of sync with Genesis, we have to look more carefully at what he is affirming. Walton says this, If people were created mortal, the tree of life would have provided a remedy, an antidote to their mortality. When they sinned, they lost access to the antidote, and therefore were left with no remedy, and were doomed to die, subject to their natural mortality. In this case, Paul is saying only that, that all of us are subject to death because of sin. Sin cost us the solution to mortality. And so we are trapped in our mortality. He is therefore not affirming that people were created immortal and is precisely in line with the information from Genesis. The town in which I live, Salem, Oregon, has a place to eat. It's really pretty good food. It's called Adam's Rib. You might guess that it's a barbecue place, but the name of the place is biblical, or at least it tries to be biblical. Another of the questions that Walton brings up in proposition number eight has to do with the translation of the word rib. He suggests that it's a valid question to ask whether the text suggests that Adam thought of Eve as having been built from his rib. And he also suggests that the text gives us the answer. The first words out of his mouth were, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2.23. More than a rib is involved here because she is not only bone of his bones, but also flesh of his flesh. And Walton says this leads us to ask then about the meaning of Genesis 2:21, which is sometimes translated he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Adam's statement later that we just read leads us to inquire whether the translation rib is actually an appropriate translation for the Hebrew word that's used there. And again, what I like about Walton is he always goes back to the text. He points out that the word translated as rib is used about 40 times in the Hebrew Bible, but it is not an anatomical term in any other passage. Outside of Genesis chapter 2, with the exception of maybe 2 Samuel 16:13 which refers to the other side of a hill the word used for rib is only used architecturally in the tabernacle and temple passages we find it in Exodus 25 through 38 in 1 Kings 6 and 7 and then again in Ezekiel chapter 41 it can refer to planks or beams in those passages, but more often it refers to one side or the other, typically when there are two sides, like rings along two sides of the ark, rooms on two sides of the temple, or the north side or the south side. And Walton suggests that based on Adam's statement and the data that we have on usage, we would have to conclude that God took one of Adam's sides, Likely meaning he cut Adam in half and from one side he built the woman. So just breaking away from Walton for a second, just within our own culture, it's common for married people to say, my better half. And what Walden is suggesting is that the biblical text actually gives us a reason to believe that we should be understanding Eve as having been created from half of Adam. Walton says, Adam's sleep has prepared him for a visionary experience rather than a surgical procedure. The description of himself being cut in half and the woman being built from the other half, Genesis 2, 21 and 22, would give him an understanding of an important reality, which he expresses eloquently in chapter 2, verse 23. What does he say there? The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in other words, the vision that Adam had regarding the creation of Eve would concern her identity ontologically in relation to all of humanity. Furthermore, Walton says, Once we see that gender identity is under discussion, we conclude that the text is not expressing something that is true about Eve alone. It is true of all womankind. This has shown Adam that woman is not just a reproductive mating partner. Her identity is that she is his ally, his other half. Becoming one flesh, then, is not just a reference to a sexual act. The sexual act may be the one that rejoins them, but it is the rejoining that is the focus. There is so much to discuss about the Garden of Eden, and we've just touched on a very small part of the Rethinking Eden project. There are other questions I have about the garden that maybe I'll just briefly mention here. Some of them have to do with the serpent. We haven't talked about the serpent much. How are we supposed to understand that character? And while there are many different ways that people understand the serpent... I just want to know what he was doing in Eden in the first place. (laughs) The text doesn't say the serpent is a spiritual being or the devil, but that's the way many people read it. And there are a few places in the New Testament that suggest uh, that may be correct. You can go to Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 20, verse 2, and see what they say about the serpent. So if this serpent in the Eden passage is the devil or Satan, is this after his rebellion or are we reading the story of his rebellion? The description given to the serpent in chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The description translated as crafty here in this verse seems to have a negative connotation. But that Hebrew word is most often used as a positive attribute in the Old Testament. It's only translated as crafty two times. The other nine times, it's translated as prudent, sensible, or shrewd. And these are all presented as desirable attributes. Could it be that the reason the serpent was in the garden is because he was part of God's creation and wasn't part of a fallen creation yet. And maybe what it is that we read about is asking the questions of Eve, his temptation, and their response. Maybe that story describes a fall from a couple different perspectives. Why would I say that? Well, at the end of this account in Genesis chapter 3, there's some consequences handed down. If you remember, Adam and Eve both get consequences. But God starts with handing down consequences to the serpent. He says this in verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. My question is this, If we are to understand the serpent as the devil character, as Satan himself, and if at this time in the garden, Satan has already rebelled from God's program, why is he allowed in the garden, number one? And number two, why is he receiving a consequence at this point similar to those handed down to Adam and Eve? It might be that we are to understand this story, not just as the fall of humanity against God's program, but maybe also as a glimpse into the unseen spiritual realm as to how that rebellion began in that realm as well. Today, we've looked into the Rethinking Eden project. Unlike Rethinking Rest, which I've fully developed in another website, RethinkingRest.com, I haven't yet begun to unpack Rethinking Eden. I have it outlined. I have some ideas. But this is one of the projects that I will continue to work on and more fully develop as time goes on. In the next episode, we'll continue on in the Rethinking Scripture Projects. We'll be discussing rethinking Babel next, and we'll follow that with rethinking conversion. Again, my goal is to always bring you outside of whatever particular box you may be in and to stay scripturally based and sound along the way. Rethinking can be painful, it can be exhausting, but that doesn't mean it's not good work. Well, that's all I've got for today. We'll see you next time. And as always, thanks for listening. And please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.